0: Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the precious decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm our host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Bill, why don't you wait until you're asked? Jason, why don't you ask me? That's right, listeners. For this episode, we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty... James Bond in License to Kill from 1989, starring Timothy Dalton, Robert Davi, and Carrie Lowell, directed by John Glenn. This movie is rated PG-13 with a running time of 2 hours and 13 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box.
1: It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. When Bond wants revenge, nothing stands in his way, not even Her Majesty's Secret Service. James Bond is in Florida for his old friend Felix Leiter's marriage. On the eve of the wedding, Bond and Felix capture South America's most ruthless drug lord, Franz Sanchez. But after a $2 million bribe, Sanchez is a free man. To teach drug enforcement authorities a lesson, he brutally murders the new Mrs. Leiter and feeds Felix to the sharks. The usually cool James Bond is beside himself with rage. However, Her Majesty's Secret Service doesn't approve of personal vendettas. They feel that this is a matter best left to U.S. authorities, and 007 is handed another assignment. For the first time ever, Bond refuses to obey, and his license to kill is revoked. With these words, you have my resignation, sir. Timothy Dalton as James Bond embarks upon the most deadly and unusual mission of 007's career. License to kill. That's
0: right. James Bond is back. License to kill. Jason, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Bill Bond. It's great to be back (laughs) with you discussing James Bond. Yeah, man. This is it. Number two of how many are there total? 25? Are we counting the Sean Connery one? Never say never again. Sure. Why not? Let's throw it in there for now. 26. I thought it was, yeah, 26 or 27. Anyway. Oh, man. Let's talk some Bond, man. Let's talk some, some T-Dalt and License to Kill. All right. So, as always,
0: let's start with our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories from License to Kill?
1: All right. Well, uh, honestly, outside of Timothy Dalton... I couldn't remember anything from this film. I don't know why, man. There, maybe it's just to what we were just saying, being that there are so many Bond films, it's just easy for me to either get plot points, characters, uh, circumstances from the films intertwined and confused or whatnot. But there are only two Dimoth- Timothy Dalton films, and I just couldn't remember the plot of this film. There were I had images. So I kind of cheated here with my earliest memories. I started watching it and things, of course, came back to me almost immediately. So I'll say a few things that uh, came back to me right away and then I'll defer to you, Bill Bond. So in regards to Dalton, I remembered this much. I I remembered liking him. I thought he was a solid James Bond. He looks good. He's physical. He's got presence. I remember he played the role pretty straight. No nonsense. Okay. Okay. I also remember sharks. Yeah, yeah, sharks in this movie. Lots of sharks. And here's another early memory of mine. As soon as I heard the music, it's, it's such a subtle thing. But when I was growing up, I listened to these orchestral scores ad nauseum time and time and time again. Uh, because I would sit in my room, and trust me, this may sound unhealthy, but it was healthy for me being a creative type. I would put on my headphones and put on the cassette or LP in some cases back then uh, and escape. I would let my imagination run to listening to the scores of the likes of John Williams and James Newton Howard and Jerry Goldsmith and James Horner and Michael Kamen. I am a Michael Kamen fan. And when I heard this score, and obviously the music of James Bond is often associated with like John Barry for instance. Correct. Well, this score, John Barry, I believe, was he ill? Uh, Something happened. He was not available to do the score for this film. Yes. And Michael Kamen comes in. Great. And I can tell because I've listened to Michael Kamen and his music so, so much as well as John Barry. And I can tell the difference. I remember I'm listening to this music going, Oh gosh, darn it. That's right. Michael Kamen did this score. I love the love theme. From this music, and I remembered one of my earliest memories was that I bought this soundtrack on cassette because there was a couple tracks that I just had to have, and it just you know was kind of a slightly it was a slightly tweaked version of the James Bond flavor uh, and musicality that I had become accustomed to with John Barry, and I, I liked this version as well. So I remember getting the soundtrack. That's about it. I'm just going to turn it right over to you, Bill Bond. Tell me about your earliest memories of License to Kill.
0: This movie came out in 1989. Summer of 1989.
1: That's right. And I
0: was super excited that this James Bond was coming out. Because I had, to this point, never seen a James Bond movie in the theater. So this is going to be my first one. Aha. Wow. And summer of 89 was pretty big. Because you had Batman... Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It was blockbuster after blockbuster. And I thought for sure, because usually at the end of the summer, we go on vacation. That's when I usually pick a movie to go see. And I was like, all right, when we go on vacation, I'm going to go see License to Kill. My dad's going to take me. Well, unfortunately, License to Kill came and went. (laughs) <laughs> it did not do well It was out of the theater in like a month Yeah. So I missed it And I was pissed Oh no So I was just waiting for it to come out on video So it was one of those As soon as it came out in the rental stores I picked it up, brought it home Watched it I'm a Timothy Dalton fan So I was excited to see you know what his next film was going to be mm-hmm. But the biggest takeaway I have from this movie Carrie Lowell Oh, my God, did I end up having the biggest crush on her? When she shows up as Miss Kennedy, as her alias. That's right. Her outfit, and she cuts her hair short. She's had a makeover. Oh, yeah. My heart probably stopped beating for a minute. My jaw hit the floor, and I was like, oh, I think I'm in love. I think I'm in love with this girl.
1: Understandably so,
0: man. We'll we'll talk about Carrie a little bit. Go ahead. And I think what I liked about this movie, too, is... Part of it took place in Florida, and at this point, I was going to my senior year of high school, and it was time to start looking at where I was going to go to college, and I really wanted to go to the University of Miami, because Hurricane Football was at its peak then. Miami Vice was one of the most popular shows on television, so the whole Miami, Florida vibe, I was just totally into it, and the fact that this was taking place, basically in the Keys. Oh, here's another reason why I got to go to school down there. I, gotta, I have to admit to that. Another thing I liked about the movie that I remembered, that there was so much of Q in it, which I really liked, because I always loved the Q character. I always loved when he kind of came in for his little bits and Q branch, and the fact that he had a bigger role. Yeah. I thought that was cool that he was a part of it. I wish they didn't wait until he was like 74 years old. It would have been interesting to see him younger, but... This is probably one of my most watched... It's in my top three most watched James Bond movies. Not saying it's one of the best ones, but for some reason, if in in the mood to put a Bond movie on in the background, this is one of the ones I put in. I am a fan of this. I am a fan of Timothy Dalton.
1: Outstanding. Man, I'm so sorry that you didn't get to see it while it was in the theater. I know. I couldn't believe it. And now that I had a little bit of recall, though, because when we did... For Your Eyes Only, I believe that was my first Bond film in the theater. And I do recall seeing Octopussy. I saw A View to a Kill. I saw those in the theater. I don't recall if I saw this one in the theater. I want to say, I would. I mean, I had a ritual or tradition of also seeing these films with my dad, and I appreciate the, the fact that you were going to, or at least you were excited about seeing this with your father, and I'm sure you've obviously seen other Bond films with your dad, and I think it's a common theme with fathers and sons everywhere that share Bond films together, and that was the, uh, a tradition of... Mine as well with my dad. And I still do that luckily today. I'm very grateful for that. It's just fun to watch. I recall just seeing No Time to Die. I was able to watch it with my dad. It's a great bonding experience. Bonding over bond. Yeah. Are we ready to get into some some initial thoughts about this film? Yes. What are some initial thoughts we have about License to Kill? All right. let's, Let's share what we thought about this film from 1989 today. Look, first off. Because we're discussing James Bond, who is working for MI6 and is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, we would like to say rest in peace to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who recently passed away on September 8th, 2022, at the age of 96. I'm taking this from the headlines, basically. I mean, her reign of 70 years and 214 days is the longest of any British monarch and the longest recorded of any female head of state in history. She was the Queen of the United Kingdom for many, many of our entire lives. So rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth II. Now, getting back to our film and our main player, Timothy Dalton, starring as Agent 007 James Bond, standing at six foot two, or according to some research, six foot one and three quarters. He was, uh, yeah, in his early 40s when he portrayed the iconic character, first appearing as Bond in 1987's The Living Daylights. According to IMDb, he has a few nicknames, one being Tim. Uh, that's not really a nickname, that's just his name shortened. The Daltonator? Like that one. But my favorite is T Dalt. That's why I was calling him T Dalt at the start of our pod. Good old T Dalt, you know? Like, that was his college nickname or something. Oh, yeah. So let's go over his filmography really quick. Uh, he did a lot of theater earlier on. Uh, he was in films in the 70s. In 1975, he was in a film called Permission to Kill. How about that? Isn't that kind of strange? Yeah. Then in 1980, he was in a small uh, science fiction film called Flash Gordon. Have you heard of it? uh uh-huh. Yes. As Prince Baron. Man, I love Flash Gordon. And he's great, man. He's great in it. A big part of that movie. And then, of course, in 87, he's in The Living Daylights, as I had mentioned. In 88, he does a film called Hawks. Then in 89, he does another movie called Brenda Starr. He's in this film, License to Kill, as well in 89. And then I need to rewatch this particular film called The Rocketeer from 1991. He is the big bad in that one. He's Neville Sinclair. Man, and he's great. That's a, I, that's a fun movie, and I have not revisited that one in, in a while. Billy Campbell? Jennifer Connelly? That's so funny you say that because I was down at the Comic-Con Museum
0: in San Diego, and they yeah. had some sketches from the Rocketeer. And it's like, sure, oh, I need to watch this movie again. And they were showing the trailer because I think I've only seen it once. Oh, okay. Really?
1: Yeah. He has a great role in that, obviously. And then I didn't realize he had a part in the film Hot Fuzz. I'm cutting to more recent times. This is 2007. He did the voice of Mr. Prickle Pants in Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 4. Uh, he had a reoccurring role on six episodes of the 2010 TV series Chuck. Now, here's one of my favorite shows that he was on for a couple of seasons, uh, which was Penny Dreadful. Did you ever watch that show? I actually did, and that was because Timothy Dalton was in it. Absolutely. He was on 27 episodes. He was excellent on that show. I really enjoyed that show. Uh, I did not finish it, unfortunately. That's something I do need to revisit as well. And then in very recent times, uh, he plays the role of Niles Calder slash Chief on Doom Patrol, uh, which was uh, from 2020 to 2021. That's the T-Dalt, Timothy Dalton, our james bond in this film uh moving on to some other initial thoughts let's talk about the title a little bit bill bond license to kill or lichens as i like to pronounce it because it is spelled with a c that's spelled l-i-c-e-n-c-e versus the american spelling which is l-i-c-e-n-s-e Now I'm going to differentiate between these two spellings by saying license with a C and license with an S. In the UK, license with a C is the noun and license with an S is the verb, as in the noun being official papers versus the verb, which is to allow, if that makes sense. But this spelling in this title is L-I-C-E-N-C-E, license to kill, which is fun when you're typing on a computer and it uh, the spell check just keeps coming up. And- yes, I have a lot of red lines I, on my that's, computer yeah, screen. A lot, lot of red lines. Hey, Bill Bond. We've got another loaded cast in this film. Robert Davi as our main antagonist, Franz Sanchez, the South American drug lord. Man, he's intimidating. He's great. We love Robert Davi, especially in the 80s. We have the wonderful Desmond Llewellyn, as you mentioned, returning as Q. Uh, we have a young, and if I may say so, a very beautiful Benicio del Toro in this movie. He looks like, like a, a baby. different person. Yes. Don't get me wrong. You can tell it's him. But wow. We have also Kerry Huruyuki Tagawa. Love that guy. Love this actor. He was in an episode of Miami Vice. He was in The Perfect Weapon, Showdown in Little Tokyo, Rising Sun. Some of my favorites. I love Kerry Tagawa. And then Wayne Newton makes an appearance in this movie. What the hell? And there's a bunch of, hey, it's that actors in this one. I forgot that this was basically a revenge movie. And I have a question for you right off the top here. Is this the first film in which Bond kind of goes off the grid? Meaning like he's working outside the jurisdiction of MI6? Yes. Okay. That's what I thought, which is really cool. Now, here's another initial thought. This movie is really violent. (laughs) I mean, it goes without saying for a bond movie, there's going to be a lot of violence, but this one took me off guard a little bit. I had some early memories of the sharks, like I had mentioned, but Holy cow, people are getting killed right off the bat. in this one, our main antagonist, as I mentioned, Franz Sanchez, the drug Lord, he, in the beginning of the movie goes to retrieve his wayward girlfriend in the Bahamas or the keys. And He takes the new guy she's sleeping with and has his heart cut out. That happens off screen, thankfully. And then he punishes his girlfriend by whipping her on the lower back. That's brutal. And then spoiler alert, Bond catches Sanchez in the opening scene, but Sanchez soon escapes DEA custody. His henchmen tracked down Felix Leiter, Bond's CIA buddy from previous films. Now he's turned DEA agent as well, I guess. And They kill Leiter's brand-new wife, Della, then feed Leiter to a tiger shark. But he doesn't die. He's only maimed, which is worse. After bad guy Sanchez flees the country, Bond decides to begin tracking down by going after his drug-running partner, Milton Crest, in the Keys, who has a front for the drug operation in the form of a marine research facility. So Bond takes his buddy Sharky, and they go to the facility, kill some henchmen. There's more death. And then they face off with the corrupt DE agent, DEA agent Killifer, whom they in turn end up feeding to the same tiger shark. We're just over 30 minutes in. We've got a lot of violence in this movie, man. There's like actual gore in this movie. It's pretty hardcore, like sweet baby Jesus. Now, this plot was one of the more straightforward ones from the Bond films. I could somewhat follow what was happening, at least for the first half of the film, Bill. That's saying something. And then they get to the Republic of Isthmus, and uh, yeah, once again, I'm just like, I don't know what that was going on. Look, I love to see Robert Davi and Grand L. Bush back together again, a little reunion from Die Hard. As I mentioned, Robert Davi plays our lead antagonist, Sanchez. Grand L. Bush, uh, he's a DEA operative in this movie, but you may remember this duo riding in the helicopter. Right above the Nakatomi Plaza, the Nakatomi Tower, and, of course, uh, Davi's line. Just like Vietnam. Hi, Slick. And uh, Grand L. Bush replies, I was in junior high, dickhead. So they're both in this movie. Now they're on opposite sides of the law in this flick. But another Die Hard connection being that Michael Kamen did the score for Die Hard, as well as, obviously, this. We have our lovely ladies, our Bond girls. I mean... You stole my, my major initial thought here, Bill Bond. Holy cow, Carrie Lowell. I'm surprised this was not one of my earliest memories for this. As she plays the role of Pam Bouvier, ex-Army pilot and DEA informant. And she is stunning. My goodness. Now, like you said, once she gets the haircut and the new dress, the makeover, oh my God, I'm like, what, what bone structure? We also have Talisa Soto as a Loopy or Lupe, Lamora. And I'm like, Bill, have you seen anyone with a softer, more tan complexion? It's as if she's walking around with a permanent soft lens over her face, this entire movie. That's, yeah. Like, oh. you know how they use sometimes, like, diffus- like diffusion lenses or soft? But no, she's just that gorgeous. So we do have some lovely Bond girls in this film. The film score by Michael Kamen, I appreciate the uh, love theme in particular, uh, which you can hear during the Bond slash Bouvier's impromptu, out of the blue sexual encounter on the speedboat. Something Bill now I'm going to refer as "quote unquote" sudden sex in Bond films. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah, oh, okay, they're sleeping together now. They literally just met. I'm not kidding. Ten minutes ago. Okay, well, that's that's Bond. And his magic penis at work. So, look, I appreciate them going away from the rear projection special effects a little bit. That's an initial thought I had, uh, especially during, you know, during the action sequences. They're still there, but not as much. I thought they got a little more creative with cutting around Dalton in this case and featuring the stunt work, uh, which is great in this movie. It lends itself a bit more to the realism. And then, of course, the final action scene happens. And I'm like, oh, whoops. Oh, I spoke too soon. Yeah, there's some terrible, rear projection in that. I don't understand what happened at the end. How do I feel about Dalton as Bond today? Look, man, when I was a kid, I just had become accustomed to Roger Moore. I had been exposed to some Connery. But when I went to the theater, as I mentioned, I saw Roger Moore. Thus, the president had been set. And I had an idea of what Bond was supposed to be and it was ingrained in my head and my heart it somewhat holds today but i appreciate dalton's more serious tone but it's still middle of the road for me it's almost as if it wasn't enough like it didn't either go serious enough for me or there was some subtle humor in this but even with the humor the the quote unquote one-liners it was as if his delivery was slightly too straight thus you know like kind of resulting in this like i said middle of the road bond for me it's like he was just doing his job and not having enough fun with it. But then again, that may be because of the tone. So I do appreciate the tone. That's just my final initial thought here. Now, jumping ahead to the later films, I'm a big Daniel Craig fan. I'm a big fan of his Bond films. I appreciate the grittier, hardened, visceral nature of his character and performance. So now I have this appreciation going back to License to Kill, watching that today, how I can see that they were trying to go for this this take on the character and story and what I'm calling like the killer bond who isn't above exacting vengeance and racking up bodies. And they attempted that harder, grittier version back in 1989. But perhaps the recipe wasn't quite right. In my opinion, the film is almost devoid of humor outside of cue. Thank God he's in this movie. And that's kind of a problem because without the witty charm and the cleverness, it kind of reduces Bond to just another action hero seeking revenge for me. And it's possible the audience just wasn't ready for this kind of Bond back in 89. So for me, Bill Bond, this movie is a tale of two halves. The tone kind of works in the first half and then it kind of goes off the rail in the second half. The plot gets convoluted and bogged down in some clunky set pieces. But we do have Carrie Lowell in this movie. (laughs) Those are my initial thoughts. What are your initial thoughts?
0: All right. So, License to Kill. So, it's the 16th entry in the Bond franchise. And Timothy Dalton's, uh, unfortunately, his last and final outing is Bond. And he only got to do two films uh, because after License to Kill, there was this whole rights issue with MGM and took him forever to figure that all out. And then, you know, you'll hear different stories of they fired Timothy Dalton or Timothy Dalton walked off because he only wanted to do one more and Broccoli family wanted to do multiples. and he didn't want to do it. So I I don't know what the truth is. Right. You can believe what you read for me. Timothy Dalton is one of my favorite bonds. I thought for a while, Craig was going to take over, but I think the more movies he did, the more I kept going back to Dalton. I almost think Craig would have been the earlier version of Dalton's bond. And then he eventually became Timothy Dalton's Bond. But I don't know. He got he got a little too sappy and too yeah. uh, love horn. I think of all the actors that have played James Bond, if you read the books, Timothy Dalton is the closest to the actual character. Right, right. And that's what I like about him. I did grow up with the Roger Moore movies, and that's the ones that I liked. But going back, they just seem too goofy to me. Mm-hmm. And this guy's supposed to be his secret agent that's supposed to be saving the world. Yes, it's far-fetched, but that's what I liked about it. And I liked the fact that this was a movie where James Bond is not trying to save the world. He's vengeance for his friend, a very close friend. I mean, the movie starts off that he's there for Felix Leiter's wedding. Yeah. So that just shows how close these two are. He's his best man. Yeah. This is probably one of the few Bond movies you could pretty much figure out the plot right from the get go. I know you said it was a little convoluted in the second half, but felt like it was pretty straightforward to me. I'd liked that the bad guy was more realistic than most of the other, where they don't have this super plot where they're going to
1: blow up the world or. Right. World domination.
0: Right. It's a simple baddie with simple plans who basically runs a country from behind the scenes and it's just printing money left and right and bond comes in from the inside and just tears it apart which i thought was pretty cool a little bit of revenge so that's what i liked about
1: it that's my take on you're entitled to your opinion my friend that's great i'm looking forward to discussing further here because it's you know i think i'm getting the sense we're a little bit on opposite ends of this you seem to be much more of a fan of Timothy Dalton as James Bond than I am, and maybe as an actor as well. I'm not sure about that. Daniel Craig's my guy now, but I think so much of this is generational and just who was your first Bond and it just hits you at the right time and if you're a fan of the novels versus the film, but it's a matter of taste. It's always a fun discussion with fellow Bond fans.
0: My issue with Daniel Craig is the same thing that happened to Pierce Brosnan. He came out of the gate with an amazing movie. To me, Casino Royale is one of the best Bond movies well, overall. Agreed. They couldn't match it after that. And then they mm-hmm. tried to tie everything together, and it just got a little too ridiculous. They should have just left every story separate. The same thing that happened with Pierce Brosnan. GoldenEye, very good movie. I think it's one of the top ten Bond films. But then after that, they're all forgettable. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas I thought Dalton did at least two solid films. Like I said, they're not the best. They're not the worst. But I, I think he followed the Ian Fleming character more than anybody else did.
1: Right. And that's in the research. That's that's very apparent. And that's what they were going for. And that's why I, I do appreciate what they were trying to do. Now, it's a matter of opinion as to whether or not they were successful in doing so.
0: Well, it's hard because you have 12 years of Roger Moore doing his quips. Totally. And it's a major shift. That. Too much of a major shift. And... Unfortunately, until Craig came and became Bond, then everyone was like, oh, oh, Timothy Dalton was trying to do that. Oh, okay. Now we get it. And it was too late. Right. Great points, man. What's up next? Let's do some favorite scenes and moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from
1: License to Kill? Let's get into this movie. I was going to say juicy movie, which made me think of my first favorite moment. It's also... <laughs> one of my complaints. Oh, I love this moment. So I'll give a little context to this. We know that in the beginning of the film that Bond is joining his mate Felix Leiter for his wedding, for Felix Leiter's wedding. And he's Felix Leiter's best man. And they are joined by a friend named Sharky, whom it took me a while to figure out what the hell Sharky was doing there. Sharky is the local boat charter owner in the Keys, but he is one of Felix Leiter's great friends too. And after they have tracked down the evil drug lord Sanchez in the cold open sequence, well, Sanchez breaks free of custody with the help of a corrupt DEA agent and exacts his revenge upon Leiter by killing his brand new wife Della and then lowering <laughs> lighter into what is a basically a shark tank or it's actually it's just regardless lighter gets half eaten by a tiger shark and is left for dead but he does not die and Bond discovers lighter and is now enraged and is going to exact his revenge and he has a brief meeting with M. And M says, you are coming back with us. We have, you're supposed to be on assignment in Istanbul, but uh, you're over here trying to figure out what happened to your buddy Lighter, and that is not your mission. And Bond literally says, well, I guess this is a farewell to arms, and does not surrender to M or his new mission, and takes off and decides to go on his own mission, which is to exact revenge, and get his revenge for what has happened to his old CIA buddy, Leiter. In doing so, he starts putting together the the clues here. Because at this point, Sanchez has, again, escaped DEA custody, and he has fled the country. So he's gone. So how is Bond going to track down Sanchez? Well, the clues, the first clue is that his buddy, Leiter, got maimed by a shark. They got to find who would own a shark. Bond and Sharky their buddy decide to start checking out all the marine research facilities in the area in the keys. And they finally come upon the last one, which happens to be owned by Milton crest and Milton crest is using his marine research facility as the front for this drug running operation, which he is partners with uh, Sanchez. So, Bond and Sharky decide to go to the Marine Research Facility in the middle of the night, and Bond has gone in, and he is looking for any clues as to what happened to his buddy Leiter and something that may lead him to Sanchez, and he's just following the breadcrumbs. And when he's going around the fish tanks within this research facility, he ends up opening a compartment, which is just loaded with maggots, and it's gross because you hear the squishiness and they're just like these huge maggots. And we've learned at this point because Bond had actually visited this facility briefly before this particular scene. And we know these maggots are used to feed these goldfish. And anyway, they're there for a reason. Regardless, one of the security guards, who we know is one of Milton Crest's henchmen, comes up behind Bond and says, hey, what are you doing here? And Bond decides to take a handful of the maggots and throws it into the henchman slash security guard's face, thus distracting him. And then Bond gets the better of him and throws him into the compartment, which is just filled with maggots. And he shuts the compartment and does away with the henchman. And it's absolutely hilarious and wonderful and ridiculous that Bond actually uses a handful of maggots to disable a security guard, and we should say there's a, a there is a big plot reveal here. Is that the maggots are used to cover up a boatload of cocaine in this compartment? That's a big plot element here. Uh, so Bond is in effect he's just dis- making a discovery here. This is you know this facility is definitely connected to Sanchez, and he's in the right place. I love the maggots in the face moment, Bill. I thought we'd just start right there. How about that? Yeah, awesome.
0: <laughs> All right, so I'll go a little bit further. I'm gonna switch my moments and scenes around. So I'm I'm gonna move on to a moment then. So later on in that scene, we find that Sanchez has been set free by an insider. Right. And the insider's name is Killifer, and he's been staying at the Ocean Exotica offices, which is uh, Milton Crest's front. And he hears all this gunfire because after Bond disposes of this one guard, another guard comes out with the Uzi and tries to shoot Bond. And then Bond ends up throwing him into a tank of electric eels. So this guy dies. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. What a great moment.
0: So now Bond's trying to see if he can find more clues. And here comes Kitlifer with his gun and... He corners Bond, and he basically admits, hey, I set Felix up $2 million, can't turn it down. And now he's going to do to Bond what Sanchez did to Felix is feed him to the Sharks. Right, yeah. So he opens the trap door, and we see the Tiger Sharks in there. And he's going to have Bond, basically Bond jump in the, the tank with him. And then luckily Sharky comes in, knocks Kilifer over Kilifer almost falls into the tank, but he grabs onto a rope and he's literally hanging on there onto the rope and his feet are on the side of the tank. And he says to bond, Hey, if you help me out, I'll give you half the money. And bond and sharky look at the suitcase that has $2 million on it. And bond picks it up and says, no, you have it and throws the suitcase right at Kilifer, and Kilifer falls into the tank with the shark. And the shark then does its business. And that just right. shows this Bond is a badass. You don't see many moments. You certainly didn't see many moments like that with Roger Moore. There was the one that we discussed in For Your Eyes Only where he Correct. kicks the car over the side. right? Because once again, that was a bad guy killing a fellow agent. Yeah, Bond means business. And it shows right there, $2 million is not going to stop me from hunting down Sanchez and killing him. And he's just cold-blooded. He doesn't even think about it. Just picked it up, tossed it in there, dead. Killing for eaten by a shark.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a great uh, moment, and it is hardcore. It's like, oh damn, Bond is for real here. He's he's uh, playing for keeps. He's serious and uh, ruthless. He's doing this in the name of his his friend. And there's a little uh, moment here that like, there's a button on that scene, which is pretty funny because his friend Sharky is standing there. And when Killifer has fallen into the tank, into the water, and the shark gets the better of him, the money is floating now in the water. The, ca- the suitcase is broken open. And all the money is floating around. And I think Sharky says something to the effect of, oh, man, what a waste. And Bond just gives him this look like, what do you mean? Like Killifer was a bad guy. And Sharky's like, no, I mean the money. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like Sharky, just
0: go scoop
1: it out. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff, man. Good moment. It's a good scene. I have my favorite scene, actually, that uh, I will get. This takes place a little bit after that. And this is what I'm calling Bond interrupts Crest's drug deal in the Keys. So... Now, obviously, Bond is putting together the clues here. How is he going to find Sanchez? Well, he knows Milton Crest is basically the key because Milton Crest is Sanchez's representation in the Keys. We don't know where Sanchez has fled to at this point, but Milton Crest is here in the Keys dealing drugs. That much we know, that much Bond knows, and... Bond goes to his buddy now, Sharky, who is the boat charter owner in the Keys, and Sharky has found out that Milton Crest has a ship called, appropriately enough, the Wave Crest, who's going to be uh, out uh, doing some research around a certain key, and Bond tells Sharky, be ready in an hour, we're going to intercept the Wave Crest. Now, they go down to intercept the wave crest in the middle of the night and the wave crest is going along and they have this like deep water probe doing its research and scanning and it comes across some sort of large object and it looks to be a giant man ray. So, okay, no big deal. Milton Crest and his crew are like, okay, not a big deal. They just keep doing their research and... It turns out that it's actually James Bond who is underneath the disguise of a giant manta ray. It's like this giant manta ray cloak disguise he's got, and he's scuba diving underneath. So what he does is Bond gets rid of the disguise and hops on the the underwater probe, which then takes him up into the ship, which is the wave crest. He sneaks aboard. He has a quick tête-à-tête with Lupi, the girlfriend of Sanchez. And then all of a sudden, it's daytime. <laughs> I don't know how that happened so quickly, but he sees that uh, the Crest's henchmen have found Sharky and they've killed him. No bueno. Poor Bond has lost like two of his buddies right from the get in this movie. So he immediately takes his revenge by quickly shooting a spear gun into a diver's chest, then jumps into the water with the dead diver and takes his scuba gear from himself. Meanwhile, conveniently... A plane arrives with a large drug shipment and Milton Crest sends the payment for the drugs out inside his underwater probe, which I thought was kind of cool. He sends the probe out to meet the seaplane. So the drug dealers on the seaplane take the money from the probe, replacing it with the drugs. Then the probe is being returned to the wave crest. But of course, Bond, who's underwater now, And he's got his scuba gear on. He intercepts the probe, opens the hatch, and starts stabbing the cocaine packets and releasing all the drugs into the ocean. So the baddies are now underwater, and they're going after him. And there's a little scuba fight, a little brief underwater scuffle. And Bond uses one of the spear guns to shoot the spear into the pontoon of the drug plane. He shoots a spear into the pontoon of the seaplane as it's speeding up to take off. And the seaplane drags Bond behind it, and he does some fancy water skiing on his feet while avoiding gunfire. And in this really ballsy stunt, Bond goes wide right outside of the wake, thereby pulling himself next to the seaplane and rams into it, physically grabbing onto one of the pontoons as the plane takes off. He disposes of the pilot and the passenger and takes control of the plane, happily realizing now he is in possession of nearly $5 million in truck money. So there's some great action in the scene, the stunt work for the water skiing on his feet and the grabbing onto the pontoon, some great aerial stunts as Bond is hanging from the seaplane as it takes off and the plane is rotating back and forth and trying to shake him loose. You can really clearly see there is a stunt man just hanging off the plane. Pretty solid action scene all around, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree. I really like the aerial stunts in this movie. And yeah. that was part of that was kind of part of my my favorite scenes. It was anytime they did any of the aerial stunts, because even the scene that you described, what I liked about it is they actually had a stunt person or people that kind of looked like Timothy Dalton. I mean, that's yeah. some of the things we've been joking about some of our previous podcasts, how you can tell right away the stunt person looks nothing like the person they're supposed to be representing. Where in this one. Pretty good interchanging between the stunt person and timothy Dalton, you really 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 have to look to see that it's someone different the way they i guess it's just the way they shot it or just the fact they had someone that physically looked the same the hair kind of looked the same right some impressive editing and of course timothy Dalton was a little more gung-ho and doing some of the stunts in the film so i think that uh, really helped with it too so it really sold those scenes
1: i agree and i I had mentioned one of my initial thoughts that uh, being that it was noticeable that they didn't use as much rear projection, probably because Dalton was willing to do some more stunt work, but that they had great stuntmen and they were smart about the editing. And I don't know why they hadn't done that more in previous films. It's just creative cutting. That's all. And you're right. The stuntmen they used were of similar build and they had the right hairstyle, whatever it was, but you can show wide angles, master shots, whatever, uh, shots from a distance where you don't need to see the person's face, but we buy it. We get it. We know it's probably a stuntman, but it's not obvious. I'm going with the suspension of disbelief. It looks cool from a distance when you see this plane in the air and this dude is hanging off of it. I'm not thinking about whether or not it's actually Timothy Dalton. I'm going, Holy crap. There's a guy hanging off of that's real. That's real. Yes. Uh, so they did a pretty good job with that. Definitely inspired Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible. <laughs>
0: Just my guess. I would have to imagine. Yeah. So just mentioning the aerial scenes, I think one of my favorite scenes is the opening when...
1: The cold open or the very beginning. Yeah.
0: Just because they have the scene where they find where Sanchez is and Bond's supposed to just go as a observer with Felix so they can finally capture him. And they get to the island where he's at and... Sanchez pulls the fast one because his cronies go off one way. Sanchez kind of jumps off the Jeep that they're on doubles back, gets on a little plane and takes off for international waters. So they only have a limited time to catch him. So they take a coast guard helicopter and give chase to the plane. And there's this awesome shot where you see the helicopter kind of hovering above the plane and, Bond decides, oh, we're gonna we're just we're just gonna catch the plane and sends like the that lifeguard line down that They usually right. hook people out and pull them out yeah. of the ocean. And he goes down with it and literally wraps it around the tail of the plane, and then they hoist the plane and now they, they captured it. There's just a gorgeous shot you see with supposedly Bond on this hook hanging off the side of the helicopter following the plane. And it's of the keys. You can see the keys, and they're thousands of feet in the air. And I'm just like, holy crap, that is real. There's nothing fake about that. And just the fact they were able to catch a plane, I just thought that was ridiculous but cool. I I loved it. Yeah. So anything aerial, I just – I don't know. I just thought it looked great.
1: You know what it reminded me of too, Bill, is uh, the cold open from The Dark Knight Rises, actually. There's a similar action piece where they – latch onto another, you know, it's one plane flying above
0: another. And we know Christopher Nolan is a big, huge Bond fan. So I'm sure that inspired him also. So see this film's inspiring a lot of other movies. There you go. It's an important
1: film. It is very important. So I've got, uh, you know, look, I'm just going to stress this moment over and over again. We've, we've talked about it twice already, but I don't care. Bond, has made a connection with Pam Bouvier, ex-Army pilot and DEA informant, and they have bonded over the fact that uh, they were in a Bimini bar and had an encounter with Sanchez's henchmen, led by Dario, who is Benicio del Toro. And they get into a bar brawl. All hell breaks loose, and they escape. That's Bond and Bouvier on their speedboat. And they decide they're going to pursue Sanchez together, and they fly to the Republic of Isthmus. As the fiction goes, Pam Bouvier uh, reluctantly plays the role of Bond's executive assistant, Miss Kennedy. And Bond, who's a little bit, little bit cold here, is, is telling her she needs to she needs to get a new wardrobe. She's got to play the part. She's got to yep. look the part. So. In the meantime, Bond goes to the Bank of Isthmus, which happens to be owned by Sanchez. Sanchez basically owns the Republic of Isthmus, as it turns out. He basically has the president. He doesn't basically, he does have the president on his payroll. And Bond goes to the Bank of Isthmus and makes a huge deposit because he's got all this drug money now, nearly $5 million. And who enters the scene? Well, Bill Bond broke it down for you earlier on. But Pam Bouvier is Miss Kennedy. She walks in and it's a wonderful moment because Bond is sitting down and making this deposit with the bank and he turns around and almost doesn't recognize Pam. He does this wonderful double take, like an actual good double take. Yes. Not a cheesy one. Because Carrie Lowell walks in as Pam Bouvier and she has her makeover and she is stunning. She's just gorgeous. I did a double take as well. Definitely one of my favorite moments.
0: Yeah. I don't know what to say about that besides she looks fantastic. She's definitely (laughs) one of those my my favorite Bond girls of all time.
1: I'm right there with you. I ain't going to argue with you on that one. She wears the short hair very well. Yes. That haircut is very becoming for her. And she goes right in the character. Yeah. She plays the
0: part great as Miss Kennedy. Yeah. And what I I think I liked about her too in the movie is she didn't play – the damsel in distress. She kind of held her own for the most part. And she even saves Bond uh, one or two times throughout the film. So I kind of like that too. She does have a strength about her. Yeah. Yeah. She does have a, you know, military background. Right. So she's, she's a pilot. pilot. She so that's what I liked about her also. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't have that as a moment. Well, I guess because I talked about in the beginning. Yeah. Even watching it now, I'm just like, still have a major crush on her. Yeah. It was kind of bummed. She didn't really do a lot after this. Yeah. All right. um, So moving on to one of my favorite moments is – I'm just going to call it uh, Bond Sleeps with Q.
1: (laughs) I think I know what you're talking about. That's great.
0: So after uh, Bond makes the deposit at the bank, he goes to the casino, starts losing a little bit of money, and then starts making a shit ton of it back. I think he makes a quarter of a million dollars at one point. Right. And that's when Sanchez uh, sends Lupe down to get some of his money back. At that point, Bond asks for a meeting to meet Sanchez. And he meets Sanchez and he basically tells Sanchez that he's a problem solver. And he thinks that Sanchez has some problems that only his expertise can take care of. So after the meeting, yeah, they go to the hotel, they check in the front lobby. And the gentleman at the front lobby says, oh, your uncle checked in. So it's a red flag right there because Bond doesn't have an uncle and he's not expecting anyone. Right. So they go in the elevator together and uh, here's another amazing Carrie Lowell scene because she's wearing this long like maroon sequin dress and he turns to Pam and says, I need a gun. And she literally, it's like a tearaway, away. Yeah. Like right mid-thigh. Yeah. Oh my god, she's got gorgeous legs. Oh, very. It's she's it's very, very sexy, very sexy. And pulls out this like little pea shooter gun, which she she gives to Bond. <laughs> and they go to the room, and Bond tells her to just wait here. Let me go check what it is. And he knocks on the door, and I guess he maybe sees the shadow come to the keyhole, kicks the door open, knocks the gentleman down, and you find out it's Q. Yes, and. Basically, Money Penny sent Q there to keep an eye on Bond. Money Penny is keeping tabs on Bond just to make sure he's okay because everybody knows what She's Bond is worried. doing. He's going after yeah, they know that he's going after Sanchez and there's nothing they can do about it. But Money Penny knows he probably needs a little bit of help, some Q gadgets. So Pam comes in, Bond introduces, they go over their their gadgets that they're going to show, and. Of course, you know, the hotel that they're at, it's this huge, gorgeous hotel room, uh, double suites inside, and it's time to go to bed. And Pam just runs to the one bedroom. He's like, all right, good night, and closes the door. And Bond's like, wait, what about me? And then Q takes off for the other bedroom, and he looks and is like, oh, I'm going to have to share a room with Q. Yeah, And he's just resigned to the fact, oh, well. I'm not getting any tonight, and he walks towards the room and he just goes, "I hope you don't snore, Q." And that's where the scene cuts,
1: and that just made me laugh because it's like, "Oh, Bond's not getting the girl this time." I totally agree. It's a very funny moment. This is that whole scene actually. I, I right now in this moment in real time, I'm going to place as into my favorite scenes because it's always great to see Q. It just is. Oh yeah, it just is. Such a credit to so Desmond. I mean, Llewellyn, who plays Q in any of the Bond films, it was, it's something you would look forward to. He exuded such warmth, Llewellyn did, as, you know, per, in the performance of Q. Very endearing. And you wanted to see the gadgets. What are the cool gadgets that he's going to have for Bond? I mean, that was just such a huge, it's part of the lore, it's part of the mythology, it's part of the Bond franchise. Q is essential. So, in this particular film, which is a little bit more serious in tone, a lot more serious in tone, this provided such a necessary levity right in the middle of this film. Not only is it great to see Q in the gadgets, but it's like, it's like oh, here we go. We get a little relief in the middle of the movie with some light humor. So Q pulls out some of his gadgets immediately. Oh, before that even, I love the introduction because... Bond says to Pam, he goes, oh, this is my uncle, Q. <laughs> he introduces Pam to Q and goes, this is uh Miss Kennedy, my cousin. And then Q's like, oh, we must be related. Yeah, <laughs> Something to that effect. So Q immediately opens his case and here come the gadgets, which are great. The first one, an explosive alarm clock, which he says is guaranteed never to wake up anybody who uses it. Love it. Guaranteed never to wake up anybody uses it. One of my favorite quotes of the movie. Uh, Then he presents the Dentonite plastic explosive. It just looks like a toothpaste tube. It's called Dentonite. (laughs) Wonderful. And then he pulls out the camera that doubles as a gun. And it has a cool optical palm reader that basically scans Bond's palm. And so that only Bond can use this particular weapon, this gun that doubles as a camera. Very cool stuff. That's all I'll say about that. It's just great to see Q. I'm glad uh, you brought this uh, scene and the moments within it up because that was what I had next on my list.
0: All right, so I'll go another moment with Q because the running gag throughout the, the movies with Q is, you know, he always has a signature line of pay attention, 007. And then he <laughs> admonishes Bond all the time because half the stuff that Q gives him either blows up breaks or it doesn't come back. But Bon always seems to find use for it. So there's a, a scene where Bon has now befriended Sanchez and they're going to see the base of the operations, which is basically the lab that they use to process all the drugs. And they mix the drugs in with the gasoline and so they could just transport the gasoline unknown that there's all this drugs in there. Right. There's a quick little moment where we have Q and he's on the side of the road with the rake and he's pretending that he's cleaning the fields. I have this written down as well. No, do you? And Sanchez and the the crew drive by and you find out the rake doubles as a mic and a receiver and he talks into it to let him know that bond has gone by. And what does he do? As soon as he's done with the rake, tosses it. This is what you've been admonishing Bond for, for 14 films, and then you turn around and do the same thing. It was kind of funny how they kind of did a callback to almost the history of Bond in that moment.
1: Great, great call. I didn't even make that connection. You kind of went deep dive regarding the character connection, which is great. Uh, Man, I wrote it down. Q posing as a Latin landscaper outside of (laughs) Sanchez's compound. He's wearing a costume. He's wearing a straw hat and a fake black mustache which is wonderful. And he's using like this, the broom. And when he lifts like the head of the broom, and from the bristles of the broom, he extends an antenna, then extends the handle in the middle to reveal the communicator. It's just great. Such a great little cue gadget. And that's, yeah, how he calls Pam to let her know that Bond and Sanchez are on the move so she can follow him. Yeah, man, that moment when he just tosses the broom into the bushes. Well, my job's done here. That's it. He does it so flippantly, like nonchalantly. He's great. It's, again, another nice comic relief moment. So I'm glad you called it out. Anything else? Moments or scenes? Uh, A couple, real quick. A couple that occurred right before this. One being that we are introduced to... Keri Tagawa, as we learn in this fiction, is an undercover Hong Kong narcotics agent that has or is attempting to infiltrate... Sanchez's operation, and he has been keeping an eye on Bond, is not trusting of Bond, and knows that Bond is up to something not so good, and when Bond thinks he's about to finally exact his revenge, he's gotten close to Sanchez, as Bill had laid out earlier, Bond is about to assassinate Sanchez by using his camera slash gun that Q had given him. And he's positioned like in a sniper position in a building across from Sanchez's office. And he's about to shoot Sanchez when then all of a sudden some ninjas out of nowhere start attacking him. We've got ninjas in this movie. Well, the ninjas happen to work for Tagawa's character, who's named Quang, by the way. And the ninjas, they fight, bond. And this is just a quick favorite moment is that one of the ninjas has a web shooter. I love it. One of the ninjas is spider-man who knew it's just kind of cool he literally does the web the the wrist flick and an entire web comes out from his sleeve and covers bond it's like wow love that gadget then i have one other little quick moment oh this is just because it's gross and it's awesome and i just call it milton crest's head blows up oh yeah Yeah, it's gross and talk about violent. I said, man, this movie is violent. And sure enough, I'm not going to give this scene too much context. It's just the fact that Crest ends up in a like this pressure chamber and Sanchez believes that Crest has betrayed him and that Crest has was the one behind the assassination attempt and puts him in the pressure chamber and raises the pressure and then immediately drops the pressure rapidly by using an ax and cutting one of the lines and crests head expands and blows up. And it just made me think of big trouble in little China for some reason.
0: Oh yeah. That's a good one.
1: Yeah. And there's a great line in that too, because crest has been set up and all this money is in the chamber with him. And when his head blows up, the blood gets all over the money. And one of the henchmen goes to Sanchez, he goes, what about the money patron? And Sanchez says, launder it. (laughs) Great stuff. All right, I got one more little final moment. I should say favorite moment in the final action set piece. And this is uh, all dealing with the gasoline tankers. As Bill Bond had mentioned, our main baddie, Sanchez, is using this big, huge stone, architectural, majestic it's a, a called a meditation center or something of that kind. And it's the, the front or cover for his drug distribution center. And this is kind of where the final action set piece begins. What ends up happening is, as Bill had explained, we understand because that S- Sanchez is showing these Chinese investors how his drug distribution works and that the cocaine is dissolved into the gasoline And then they use this chemical extraction process to extract the cocaine from the gasoline at its final destination. And that's how they transport it and how it's disguised. It's dissolved in the gasoline. And what ends up happening here is that there are four gasoline tankers, these big trucks with gasoline tanks behind them, that leave the facility as the facility is blowing up. Trust me, a million things happened before this. Now, of course, Bond manages to get onto one of the gasoline tankers and he's chasing Sanchez, and Sanchez is chasing him, and there's a lot of gunfire and there's a lot of trucks driving around so at one point, we know that Sanchez has gotten his hands on four stinger missiles. <laughs> and he hands one of the stinger missiles, he gets ahead of the gasoline tankers. This is Sanchez. he gets ahead of the gasoline tankers and he's like, "I know how I'm gonna take out Bond." I'm going to blow him up with one of the Stinger missiles. So he gives one of his henchmen, who's got the rocket launcher, he gives him the Stinger missile, loads the rocket launcher. They're waiting for Bond to approach in one of the gasoline tankers. Bond is approaching. He's like, oh, shit, they've got a Stinger missile pointed right at me. And conveniently enough, there happens to be a dirt ramp off to the side of the road. So Bond drives the tanker up the dirt ramp tilts the entire gasoline tanker onto the left side tires. So it's literally lifted up on one side as the henchman fires the stinger missile, which goes underneath the tanker, barely missing the tanker goes past it and blows up one of the other gasoline tankers that had cracked previously. And it's just, it's a great stunt. It looks really good. I wish the bond theme had kicked in at that point. There's no music for some unknown reason, Regardless, the stunt's really cool, and it's not over, ladies and gentlemen, because Bond continues to drive the truck, leaned on one side on the left tires, and the right side is completely elevated in the air, so he's driving this truck on a total angle, like a 45-degree angle, and he's approaching the henchman's Jeep that they were driving. The henchman run out of the way, and somehow Bond lands the truck on all of its wheels on top of the henchman's jeep crushing it awesome great stunt the entire final action set piece is batshit bonkers with all these gasoline tankers but that moment within it is pretty cool
0: yeah there's some crazy stuff with those four tanker trucks and then you have Pam flying around in her plane and you have yeah i've got Sanchez in his car and then the henchman hijack a jeep and all this is going on It's, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I don't it's even know. It's how to hard to keep track all. of, but needless to say, Bond does take out all four tankers. Oh, of course.
1: And exacts his revenge. That's a fun vehicle stunt that they pulled off in the middle of that whole sequence. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth watching just that set piece, just for that stunt, just to see, see him do it. Cause I mean, it's a real tanker. I mean, somebody did it right That wasn't CGI. No, it was not CGI.
0: All right, so let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is
1: delicious, it does have holes.
0: Yes, if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. I'll go first on this one, Jason. Please do. Okay. I have a complaint (laughs) against Celine Dion for covering... If You Asked Me To, which was originally sung by Patti LaBelle during the closing credits of the movie. I really, really liked that song. Oh, this is amazing. And thought if I was to ever get married, if I could have convinced my wife for that to be my wedding song, that's what I wanted it to be. That's how much I love that song. And then Slee Dion had to cover it and fuck it up. Because everyone remembers her rendition not the original rendition. And there's no way I was going to have a Celine Dion be my wedding
1: song. Oh my goodness. That is amazing. And you should be pissed. And for some reason, I can't even think of the Celine Dion cover though. I actually always, I know this Patty LaBelle version for sure. I don't know. I, I guess I'm the only one that doesn't know. That is an awesome complaint to begin with. Here's my first complaint. <laughs> Is that Felix Leiter is getting married at the beginning of this movie. And after the opening action sequence in the cold open, Felix Leiter and Bond parachute down to the wedding, which is kind of cool. Gets down there, and I realize Felix Leiter, well, he looks as old as Della's dad. Felix is old. Yes. There's a pretty big age gap. Because at one point, we see his bride-to-be, whose character's name is Della... She's in a limo with her father getting ready, like saying, oh, Felix is late again. And I'm like, oh, my God, Felix looks just as old as her dad. What's going on here? I'll be honest with you. I'm going to get to this. I was almost when I first watched this because I hadn't seen it in so long. And like I said, I'm an idiot and I forgot most of what the hell was going on in this movie. I didn't know who was getting married. I was like, wait, is Bond getting married? Who's getting married to Delo? I'm so confused. And I'll tell you why in just another moment here with another complaint I have. But uh, what's your next complaint? Okay. So you
0: kind of touched on this a little bit. Felix gets attacked by the shark. Sanchez feeds him to the tiger shark. Mm
1: -hmm. Bond
0: finds him. He's luckily still alive. So Bond's going to do a little investigating, and he takes Sharky with him. And they're checking all these... um, Places down the keys, and they come upon the Ocean Exotica offices, which is run by Milton Crest. Bond comes up, knocks on the door, says he wants to speak with the proprietor of the building because he's looking for a carcarius to transport to a zoo. Milton Crest should have sniffed out right away. Wait, this guy is looking for a great white shark to put into captivity. Great white sharks, as you know, are just not kept in captivity. Right. Um, I think the longest recorded is 198 days, which I think was in San Francisco. Huh. I think even before then, and that happened 15 years after this movie was released. I think the longest point a shark has been held in captivity up to that point was 19 days because they just can't handle being in captivity. Some of it usually has to do with the tanks are too small. Right. Um, the electromagneticism in the tanks makes the sharks confused and they literally would like slam themselves into the side of the tanks I had and come across and yeah, kill those... themselves. Yeah. Right. That they actually like get depressed. <laughs> so if Milton knew anything about sharks and fish and all that, as soon as Bond asked that, he should have knew this shit was bupkis and this guy was up to something and never even let him into the, into the building. Come on.
1: Simple shark stuff. I've never, yeah. Never seen a great whitehead. A zoo or an aquarium. Correct. It never will be. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Glad you, you pointed that out. Uh, I'm going to rattle off a few here real quick. I just, I guess I'm obsessed with Felix Leiter's wedding. But before this, uh, I love this shot. We talked about the cold open action was Love the shot of Bond being lowered from the chopper onto Sanchez's plane. You talked about, you broke down that sequence. There is one shot. Where Bond is being lowered on the, the that lifeguard like uh, wire, mm-hmm. and his hair isn't moving at all. <laughs> it's great. They're oh, like yeah. thousands of feet in the air, like flying and trying to catch up to a plane. The helicopter's above the plane, cruising at I don't know what speed, and he's just being lowered like, and it's just completely static. His ha- hair is not even moving. It's just kind of funny. Hey, this is what I wrote down. What is going on with Lighter's new bride, Della, and Bond? Oh, because, flirty, flirty, yes. Oh, my. This is what I'm talking. I'm like, wait, who just got married? I was so confused, Bill, because after the cold open and the credits, Della, this young blonde, very attractive new bride and Bond, they come bustling into the side room where the cake is, the wedding cake. And they're kissing each other. And I'm like, oh, oh, it's Bond that got married. Oh, OK. I didn't know he. there's a movie where he got married. And it's like, oh, wait, I had to rewatch it. And I'm like, no, she says it's tradition for the bride to kiss the best man. And he's like, no, I think it's the other way around. Why are you kissing your best friend's wife? What is going on? What's happening here? Does she want to get with Bond or vice versa? I I don't know. I, that was weird. It was weird. It just threw me off. And you had just brought up the fact that Felix gets mauled by a shark. Okay. Shortly thereafter. And then he's put in a body bag, but he's still alive. Yeah, no, no, no way he lives. He's in need of immediate and intensive medical attention. He bleeds out 100%. No way he's alive. Yeah, because he lost his whole lower leg, right? Yeah. And it's been some time. It's like the next day because he was like lowered to the water and got mauled by the shark. And it's the next morning when Bond finds him. In the body bag, and he's still breathing and alive, and there's just no way in hell he's alive.
0: No, in the book, he loses an arm and a like... Oh my god! Yep, but it was in the uh, novelization, "Live and Let Die." That's right. I did read that. No, idea. yeah, there's no "License to Kill" novel. This is based on. What's your next uh, complaint? It'd be a quick complaint, just because you you mentioned um, the helicopter scene with Bond in his hair. <laughs> I, I do have to say about this. I mean, granted, Sean Connery wore a wig. Right. Timothy Dalton does have the worst hair of all the Bonds. Mm. And it does not look good slick back. It's okay when he wears it normal, but when he had it slick back in the casino, it's like, yeah, that's not a good look for you.
1: His hair was thinning a bit. But it had like this weird thickness and kind of, I don't know. He had a little lumpy. Like, yeah. There was something weird going on. It's a good call. Just leave it as is. Still very handsome man. Mm-hmm. They need somebody to uh, curate the hair a little more. Yeah. I I love the character of Sharky just because this is one of those situations, again, where there's a civilian just going along with a profession, like someone from law enforcement. In this case, it's freaking Bond that he's going with on these undercover little missions. And he has no reason to be like no place to be there. Like, and he's just being put at risk and he ends up getting killed. And that's what happens when you're just a civilian. You shouldn't be on these missions. So, poor Sharky.
0: Okay, so this is touching on your earlier scene. So when Bond does break into the Ocean Exotica offices, because when he goes in there earlier to talk about the shark, he sees Felix Leiter's carnation on the floor. So he knows, okay, Felix was here. I need to come back and find out what happened. And, I mean, he's literally in there for two seconds. And for some reason, he decides to open up the drawers with the maggots, which uh-huh. really looked like penne noodles. I and mean, they're not, they don't look anything <laughs> like maggots. And decides just to reach in there and find all the cocaine. Was like that's That was a little too simple. Mm. That was too easy for me. Yeah. And then just that little weird, like, rippling effect they had with the maggots. Right. I, I didn't get that either. Whatever they were using to push the noodles around in there. Yeah.
1: There was like it had like this little like wave effect, yes. That doesn't seem quite realistic. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny, man? Speaking of great eighties movies, every time I see anything like that where the cocaine is buried underneath something, I go directly to Beverly Hills Cop. I just think of the coffee grounds. over Oh there. yeah, the cocaine, and they go mm-hmm. into the k- the crates in the warehouse. In this case, it's penne noodle maggots. Yep here's the complaint was with the, you know, Q comes in with these cool gadgets. I just didn't think it was great use of the camera gun. They didn't really make much use of it. Like I usually like to see the, whatever gadget it is, or however it is disguised, like to see it used as that first. And then mm-hmm. the reveal, like I thought maybe he'd be like posing as a tourist with a camera around his neck, going around taking pictures. And then he gets to use it as a gun where it's like, Q he like, here's a camera and it's also a gun. And then literally he just gives it to Bond in this box that looks like a gift box. And he goes and opens the box and just uses it as a gun. Like, why not just That's give true. him a gun? He could have just brought him, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. High powered rifle. Yeah. Why bother disguising a gun? Unless he needed to do that to get through customs or whatever it is. I get. But yeah, it's like, well, just give him a sniper rifle then. <laughs> Here's a complaint, man. I think Kerry Tagawa is com- like criminally underused in this. I don't know. I just like that the the actor, uh, again, he plays Quang, this Hong Kong narcotics agent, and he's barely in it. He follows Bond around a little bit, and then he interrogates Bond for two seconds, and then all hell breaks loose, and he commits suicide by biting down on a cyanide pill. Oh, I'm a- going to cut all of them out, and could save 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah it was unnecessary that whole yeah, thing yeah all of that was it was convoluted it took me a while to figure out what the hell was going on who like i get that who he was and it was one of those things where he was trying to infiltrate Sanchez's operation and bond happened to be there. And so Quang's mad at him and's like, what are you doing? You're interrupting this. I put years into this operation and then you just show up and try to kill Sanchez. And then there's another MI6 agent that just happens to show up and he's like, no, he's a rogue agent. We got to take him back to MI6. He's got to answer for his actions. And then out of the blue, outside we have Sanchez and his uh, security, head of security with tanks blowing holes into this bunker. And then Quang dies And the MI6 agent dies and Bond is still strapped to the table. And that leads right into my next complaint because I have questions about how Sanchez now respects Bond after he rescues him from this mess. Help me out here, Bill. Bond has gone. He's trying to get close to Sanchez in order to assassinate him, in order to take him out, to kill him in revenge for Leiter's death. So he gets close to him. Unfortunately, his assassination attempt fails and Quang, the undercover Hong Kong narcotics agent, interrogates him, but he gets taken out. And now here's Bond strapped to a table. Then Sanchez rescues him, lets him stay at his lovely compound resort there in the Republic of Isthmus and is like, hey, we're friends now. Wait, Bond went to Sanchez saying, I want to work for you. I not only can take care of problems, I am more of a problem eliminator. And he doesn't prove himself to Sanchez. He ends up getting caught by Quang and his people. And then Sanchez takes care of him and is like, great, you're going to work for me now. And I'm like, wait a minute, what has Bond done for you? Like he's, if anything, been ineffective to this point.
0: I can explain that. All right. So Bond has the initial meeting with Sanchez, right? Basically says, Hey, I'm looking for work. Hopefully it can work for you. So now Sanchez finds out that one of the so-called Chinese investors is a mole and he goes to take him out. And when he goes to take him out, they come across bond. Now Sanchez doesn't understand why bond is with this agent and bond tells him, yes, i I knew that he was a mole, but he knew who I was. So he was trying to take me out before I could warn you. So Chance says, knows, oh, I do have problems. This guy can help me out because he could sniff out people like this because of his background of being an MI6. Bond
1: does tell him, yeah, he was a former British agent. Okay, that I buy it. So I think what I did was I misunderstood because I thought Bond – uh, yeah, I just misread it. I mis because I thought he was going to be like his personal hitman or assassin or something like that. But he just was wanting to be employed by Sanchez to be his like security guy. Correct. He almost wanted to take over Heller's job. Right. Yeah, exactly. I misread it. So that makes sense. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, man. You can just uh, delete that whole complaint of mine then from this podcast. Well,
0: maybe other people need to know. So they didn't get it either. So, if you're asking, other people are asking, Jason. Got more, Bill Bant. I got, yeah, I got a couple more. All right, just really quick. Felix's got a pretty nice home there down in the Keys for being CIA, DEA.
1: That must pay really well. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, and he must be spending a lot of time down there because his best friend is Sharky, the boat charter owner. A little too convenient. And he's 61 years old. Yeah. I mean, that's it feels like he's retired. <laughs> right, he's, he should be retired. But he's not. So, general complaint with the love triangle here. We've got our Bond girls. We've got Pam Bouvier. We've got Loopy. I love that her name is Lupe, but Sanchez just calls her Lupe.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, Loopy.
1: And I think Loopy has all of, like, two scenes with Bond that are very brief and then ends up sleeping with him and then professes her love for Bond and i was like what are you do- what are you talking about you're in love with bond wait what and that makes pam jealous of course and it was just a little ridiculous because it's like i don't, you don't really see that too often i don't know in bond films the the bond girls becoming jealous of one another well yeah bond girls usually don't cross paths that was kind of interesting just to have them cross paths but then lupe professing her love for bond was strange it was just like ah we don't need this
0: Yeah, she was unfortunately the weak point of the movie. Basically, all her scenes, Robert Davi would ask her a question. She would turn her head, or anybody would ask her a question, and then she would just look away and then answer. That was like her go-to move, just look away. This got a little tiresome. How many times was Bond going to tell Q or Pam to go home, that he Mm -hmm. could handle this by himself, only to ask pull them back in to help him? Oh, At least five or six times?
1: I work better alone. Apparently you don't. <laughs> not at all. Just stop, tell them to leave. They're not going anywhere. Good call. Yeah, they're they're constantly saving his ass. Literally, they're there as backup. I've got, uh, I'm going to go through, these are complaints, but I'm going to just ask these questions real quick and you'll just get a gist of it. Throughout the, the final action set piece, we've got four gasoline tankers running through the desert basically and it's just, it's batshit, but it's fun and it's stupid all at the same time. So my question is, there's some great stunts in this, some great aerial photography, some great, great shots of people leaning in and out of cars and jumping onto, like Bond, the stunt, it's like trumping around on these vehicles. And then when they go to the interior, here's of the cars with Sanchez and uh, his financial advisor, Truman Lodge, played by Anthony Stark. Why are they using rear projection for all the shots inside the cars? Yeah, that really stood out. I was like, what are you doing? Why is, Why are we doing this? They have exterior shots of the car with the actors themselves leaning out the window, yelling things in the midst of the action, in the midst of the driving. But when they're inside the car, they have this horrible rear projection. I'm like, what are you doing? Here's another question during the sequence. Is it smart to be firing automatic weapons at gasoline tanker trucks? Probably not. When bon- <laughs> Bond and Sanchez are fighting on the tanker at the very end of the sequence and it goes off the road and down the embankment. They're dead. They're both dead. That's it. Movie's over. Uh, but no, they both survive. Yeah, but
0: they're very hurt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they are. They're pretty scratched. Yeah. They've got holes in their clothes. They're dirty. They're bloody. It's true. That's all I got to on. All right, so let's move
0: on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. All right, I will go first. I don't think we're matching. So I'm actually going with David Hedison, who played Felix Leiter. So David was the first actor to portray the role of Felix Leiter twice in the Bond films. Um, The second would end up being Jeffrey Wright during the Daniel Craig movies. David appeared in many television shows such as The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Matt Houston, Simon & Simon, and Double Trouble, which we briefly discussed in our Grease 2 episode. David's most famous role is probably as Captain Lee B. Crane in the 60s television series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. However, for all of you 50s sci-fi horror fans, David Hedison, under his original stage name of Al Hedison, played the scientist Andre in the 1958 classic The Fly. Oh, cool. Yes. And the other uh, Bond film that um, David Hedison was in was uh, Live and Let Die, which was... Roger Moore's first
1: portrayal of Bond. There you go. Very cool. Well, thank you for that. All right. So who do you got, Jason? I guess it is my turn, isn't it? Yes. Well, for my Hey, It's That actor, I just mentioned him. He plays Sanchez's financial advisor. His name is Anthony Stark, playing the role of Truman Lodge. Anthony Stark attended Antioch High School, Illinois, the same high school that yours truly attended. I, Jason Massick, attended Antioch High School. Anthony Stark is an alum of my high school. He was a handful of years ahead of me, but this is where his interest in theater and acting began. Here's a quote from IMDb. You show up, get to put on cool clothes, shoot a gun, ride a horse, and you get to kiss the girl. It's like every boy's fantasy. That was actually a quote from Anthony Stark on his role as a gunfighter, Ezra Standish, in the Western The Magnificent Seven. Which I think was the show. It was a short-lived show that he was on. So, yeah, Anthony Stark. You know, we have our, our friend in common, Bill and I, uh, Chris Valenziano, who also attended Antioch High School. And he was the one that actually told me about Anthony Stark. He's like, you know, there's there's a guy already out there. In ho- this is before Chris and I come out to La La Land here and to Hollywood. And he's like, there's already a guy from Antioch High School out there in L.A., Anthony Stark. And I think Chris Valenziano ran into him at some point and I tried calling him earlier today to try and figure out what the story was because I'm going to get this wrong. But I want to say he ran into Anthony Stark at the flower shop at the Linden Plaza in Lindenhurst. I I hope Chris can correct this for me or uh, clear it up for me and I will clarify it uh, or correct it on a future podcast. But uh, yeah, Um, so uh, you were going to say something? Bill?
0: No, I knew there was a connection between you guys. I remember Chris actually mentioning that to me because he knew I was a Bond fan and it was like, Oh yeah, Anthony Stark went to school with him. That's right. I didn't realize you were guys were that far apart.
1: Yeah. He's a three to five years older than us, I believe. Okay. But uh, regardless, a little bit of his filmography, he uh, did some TV when he was young and he was on an episode of Silver Spoons in 85. Uh, He had a big break uh, playing the role of Cameron in the film Nothing in Common in 1986 which I think it's that's Hanks and Gleason. Thank you, Jackie Gleason. And then uh, he's on an episode of 21 Jump Street. He was in the movie 18 again in 1988. He was in Return of the Killer uh, Tomatoes also in '88, Which was He does this "License to Kill." Yeah, and then uh, he's with J.C. V.D. Jean Claude Van Damme in "Nowhere to Run," 1993. He was, dude. He was in an episode of "The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr." He was on an episode of "Seinfeld." So Anthony Stark getting around. He was in a lot of other TV shows. I'd mentioned the Magnificent Seven. He was in Prison Break, Nip Tuck, Cold Case, Burn Notice. Uh, The list goes on and on, and all the way up to like Castle. He was an episode of Mad Men as well in 2015. So, Anthony Stark, working actor and graduate of Antioch High School, Illinois.
0: Pretty cool. All right. So, let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about License to Kill? The script,
1: initially called License Revoked was written with Dalton's characterization of Bond in mind and the obsession with which Bond pursues Sanchez on behalf of Leiter and his dead wife is seen as being because of Bond's own brutally cut short marriage. Dalton's darker portrayal of Bond led to the violence being increased and becoming more graphic. Wilson compared the script to Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, where a samurai, without any attacking of the villain or its cohorts, only sowing the seeds of distrust, he manages to have the villain bring himself down. And that's a reference, of course, to the plot in this movie, which, Bill, you'd brought up earlier, which is cool, is that Bond basically infiltrates Sanchez's organization but gets Sanchez to doubt the loyalty of his employees. And so there's crumbling from within the organization. That's how he brings him down.
0: Um, so License to Kill was the first James Bond film not to have any of the movie filmed in the UK. Most of the Bond films were at some of it was filmed at Piedmont Studios. This one, not at all. And we only have one scene where they kind of do some like stock footage of the UK. And then I think M meets with Money Penny real fast for about a quick scene. Yeah, but that's about it. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's, yeah, totally. For Laces to Kill making their final appearances with the James Bond franchise. So we had Richard Malbom. Um, was uh, the writer, uh, wrote many of the films. This was, uh, unfortunately, his last film. He passed away shortly after. Uh, John Glenn, who was the director of the film, had uh, directed some of the other films. This is the last film that he worked on. Maurice Binder, who uh, did the title design of the film. And then uh, Richard Brown, It was his final turn as M, which would then uh, be passed on to Judy Dench when Pierce Brosnan came in. Uh, Caroline Bliss as Miss Moneypenny. And of course, Timothy Dalton as James
1: Bond. Good step. There we go. Appreciate that. So the scene where Sanchez's plane is hijacked, this is the beginning of the film. Uh, It was filmed on location in Florida with stuntman Jake Lombard jumping from a helicopter to a plane and then Dalton himself being filmed atop the aircraft. The plane towed by the helicopter was a life-sized model created by special effects supervisor John Richardson. After filming wide shots of David Hedison, you're hey, it's that actor, and Dalton parachuting, closer shots were made near the church location. During one of the takes, a malfunction of the harness equipment caused Hedison to fall on the pavement. The injury made him limp for the remainder of filming.
0: All right, so the character of Milton Crest, who was played by Anthony Zerbe, and his yacht, the Wave Crest, was. Featured in the Hildebrand rarity, a short story in For Your Eyes Only, a collection of five James Bond short stories written by Ian Fleming. Crest weapon of choice, a stingray tail used as a whip, was given to the film's villain, Sanchez. So in the beginning, when Sanchez is whipping Lupe, it's yeah. with a stingray tail. After I read it, and then you look at it, you I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can see what Jeez. that is now. Brutal. And in the book, Crest is married, too. And, yeah, he uses that on his wife. To keep her
1: in check. Oh, my God. No bueno. Speaking of Milton Crest, Milton Crest's death in this film used a prosthetic head, which was created by John Richardson's team based on a mold of Anthony Zerbe's Zerbe's face. The result was so gruesome that it was shortened and toned down to avoid censorship problems. (laughs) Uh, That's fun. Fun makeup effects, special effects.
0: Um, so, in the beginning of the film, uh, Sanchez pays uh, Killifer $2 million, all in 20s, which would be 100,000 bills, uh, each weighing about one gram a piece. So, that would make the suitcase weigh about 220 pounds. Oh my God. The fact that Bond was able to just whip that no problem at Killifer. That's amazing. Bond's a pretty strong guy.
1: He is. <laughs> License to Kill became the first Bond film to receive a PG 13 rating from the MPAA's ratings board, a rating that has been applied to every Bond film since. The 2006 Ultimate Edition DVD of License to Kill marked the first release of the film without cuts.
0: And then, uh, yeah, for my last fact um, so there were 16 18 wheeler tankers used with some modifications. Of course, uh, some of them were made so they could run a little bit faster for the stunts. And then um, one of them was made. Oh, yeah. So one of them actually had an extra steering wheel in the back of the cabin. So when Ah. uh, Pam was driving, that was actually the stunt person that was doing the driving for her. And then um, one of them had extra set of suspension. So there's that one scene where the the tanker's already blown, but the, the front of the truck goes through the fire and it does kind of the wheelie to right. get through the fire. So it was because they had some
1: extra suspension in it. Got it. Now it all makes sense. Man, here's a couple quick ones. At 21 years old, Benicio del Toro was the youngest actor to play a villain in a James Bond film. He doesn't even look 21. No. Baby-faced, man. Pam Bouvier, the character, played by Carrie Lowell, is the first Bond girl to ever drink one of Bond's signature vodka martini cocktails. And that's Pretty much all I got, Bill Bond. All
0: right, so let's move on to box office. So License to Kill was released on July 14th, 1989 on 1,575 screens. On an estimated budget of $32 million, it grossed $34.7 million domestically and $121.5 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $156.2 million. The movie was really hampered by the competition at the box office as it debuted number four at the box office behind Lethal Weapon 2, Batman, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. License to Kill would only stay in the top ten for another two weeks. When factoring in inflation, License to Kill was the lowest grossing movie in the United States, and it would be the last James Bond movie to be released during the summer. In the UK, however, License to Kill was the seventh highest grossing movie of the year. Wow. There you go. So uh, moving on to reviews. When growing up in the late 80s, we would tune in weekly to watch Siskel and Eber at the movies to hear their latest reviews of upcoming releases. Their review of License to Kill was split. Gene found the movie to be uneven, ranging from quite exciting to tedious He did, however, enjoy Timothy Dalton's portrayal of Bond. Roger also enjoyed Dalton's performance, thinking he found his stride. He also enjoyed the final chase sequence, finding it to be the most sensational chase sequence in any Bond movie. Wow. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 79%, and it has an IMDb rating of 66 so that takes us to our additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about
1: License to Kill? All right. Well, I'm going to start with the most obvious. and I think we've kind of answered this to a certain extent already. But uh, my question, Bill Bond, is where does Timothy Dalton rank among those who have portrayed James Bond for you? I
0: would – man, so hard. It's hard because he's only done two movies. So I'd probably put him second behind Connery. Wow. Yeah, I do Connery, Dalton, Craig, Lazenby, Pierce, and more. There you go. That's
1: pretty good. Yeah, I, I have them lower. You know, I've got Craig, Connery, Pierce, then Dalton, then probably more. I still haven't seen I'm so embarrassed to admit this here on this podcast. I still have not seen Her Majesty's Secret Service. I have not seen the Lazenby film. That's all right. Most people haven't. I really want to, though. I really want to see it now. I'm not saying it just because we're doing a Bond film right now here on this podcast. I've wanted to see it for some time since I know you're a big fan of the film. And I've heard so many good things over the years now about that film, actually how underrated it is and how underrated Lazenby.
0: Well, that's funny too, because is. they do touch on the fact in this movie that Bond was married and that's the right. movie he gets married in. There you go. All right, I'll do a question. Then I have a thought afterwards. Okay. Favorite Wayne Newton performance. So you have this and License to Kill, mm-hmm. you have The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and you have Vegas Vacation. What is your
1: go-to Wayne Newton
0: acting performance?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Good old Wayne Newton. You know, I actually probably think of Vegas Vacation first, even though I'm a big fan of The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Man, I'd love that movie for a long time. <laughs> Such a good, bad movie. Yep. Love Andrew Dice Clay in that movie. Just like rapid fire one liners, yeah, I'd probably go with Vegas vacation. I just that i that's a little bit more memorable, like Wayne Newton performance, probably for me, seducing you know Beverly d'angelo or vice versa right uh, how about you? I'm going forward fairly god i I missed that movie. I need to see it again. I saw that opening
0: night, yeah, where it came out like gangbusters and then bombed after that,
1: right. And it's Ed O'Neill plays his boss in that, right?
0: Well, he plays a
1: cop. There's just another cop.
0: Yeah. He's, he's like a, a cop. He's, cop. Not, he's not, not like, yeah, he, he's not, Yeah, he's not
1: a fan of Ford. Yeah, but, no, not at all. Right. Amazing. Good stuff, man. Hey, the rumored front runners, and it's always changing, but the, the, these seem to be the consistent front runners for the next James Bond. Since Daniel Craig has retired and, uh, these rumored frontrunners are Tom Hardy, Idris Elba, Henry Cavill, Regé-Jean Page, and Sam Huan. Uh, I'm, trying, I'm not saying that right. Huan. And the question is, who do you think would be best? Who would you want? And if none of those are appealing to you, is there someone else you would like to see play James Bond? And if you're not familiar... Uh, most of you are familiar with, with Hardy and Elba and Henry Cavill, but uh, Reggae jean Page is from Bridgerton, and uh, he was recently in The Gray Man. But also uh, Sam Huan, he uh, is from the show Outlander. Who who do you want? Who do, who do you see as the next Bond? It's someone we don't know. Yeah, you think you just go with kind of an unknown. Yeah, I think that's the way you need to do it. Or lesser known, at least.
0: Right, because I think that was the problem with Pierce, Mm -hmm. because he was originally supposed to have it after Moore, and then because of Remington Steel contract. Once, yeah, once NBC knew, oh, he's going to be the next James Bond, and they were going to cancel the show, then they brought it back. Then they went back to Dalton because they they actually did ask Timothy Dalton before to be Bond, and he said no because he was too young. Then they turned to Timothy Dalton, and then he did the two movies and then he bowed out or got fired. You know, like I said, whatever that story is. And then they bought in Pierce, but I think in a way Pierce was almost too well known. I mean, granted, Roger Moore was the saint before, mm-hmm. but right. no one really knew who Sean Connery was when he became Bond. No one really knew who George, I mean, George Lazenby, that was like his first movie. And then even Daniel Craig I mean, the only thing people maybe knew, I only knew him from Layer Cake. Luckily, I had seen Layer Cake right after they announced. I was like, oh, this guy can play Bond because everyone was killing him. I was like, no, we'll see. So I I think it needs to be someone that's not. I don't know. They do this all the time. They think like the biggest name actors. Mm -hmm. No, it's too much of a commitment.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good call. Like I would have loved to see Elba. That would that was gonna that was my call. Yeah, I, if they were to go with a quote unquote big name, that's that's who it would be, in my opinion. But twelve years ago, right? Well, he's fifty now, and that's the other thing is supposedly they're looking for somebody that's under forty and taller than five ten. I guess I like the requirements.
0: Yeah, you want someone that you could do five. You can at least do
1: five movies with. Yeah, and some of these, like you get Tom Hardy, who's forty five, and he's. Five foot nine, and then you have well, Henry Cavill could do it. I mean, he's 39, he's six one. I totally agree with you, and I would like to see kind of an up and comer, newer face. It's funny that you mentioned you you knew Daniel Craig from Layer Cake. I knew him as he had a great small role as a bad guy from The Road to Perdition, the Tom Hanks, right? Period piece. And I was like, man, they're going with this guy's James Bond. He just seemed to me at the time to have a little bit more of a character look and had played like. Kind of these rougher characters, but then he just took over Bond and just made it his own. And he's great. I mean, obviously, uh, Mm -hmm. he's my favorite. Uh, But yeah, there's some other big time actors. Like, I think it'd be fun to see like a Ewan McGregor in this. He might not have like the physicality necessarily. I just like Ewan McGregor, but uh, and he's a little bit older too. Now, I think he's 51 now, uh, or an Oscar Isaac. But you know who I thought would be good too is like a Charlie Hunnam. I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Hunnam's work at all. Is that
0: Sons of Anarchy?
1: Yeah, but then he did the, I think King Arthur was kind of, uh, that was the Guy Ritchie. They were trying to revive that uh, story, which didn't work. Uh, he was in Triple Frontier and he's done some things since. Um, and I think he's uh, become a pretty solid actor. I like Charlie Hunnam, but uh, I'm also a big Killian Murphy fan. Uh, again, not quite the maybe the physical presence, but I just like him as an actor. I think he'd be kind of a cool bond. But they're again, they're big names. So, mm-hmm. and the the problem being, are they you know more identifiable with certain roles or parts or whatever? Are just too well known? Yeah. So I think it's a good call uh, on your part. I I tend to agree with
0: you. Yeah, I think the other name they threw out at one point made me pause to go. Hmm, that would be interesting. Was um, Tom Hiddleston, who does oh, Loki. Sure. At,
1: yeah, great call. I love him.
0: Yeah, I would have liked. I think
1: he's great. I wish he was was in more. Yeah, I think he's got a great presence. Tall, great build. Clearly a wonderful actor. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, commands the screen. Yeah, but just too late for him.
0: It's got. Yeah, it's got to be someone we don't know.
1: But it was funny, and this is under the category of additional thoughts, because upon thinking about this, it is funny how the landscape of modern cinema really has changed, because I was trying to think of action stars today that could fill the role, possibly fill the shoes of James Bond, and okay, let's look at the action or action-adventure films, thrillers from today, and I'm like, looking at them, I'm like, wow, it's just few and far between. It's just different now. Mm -hmm. We don't get your standard outside of Bond. Because it's all superheroes. And then you get, yeah, also it's all, yeah, it's all superhero films. And uh, so I was like, oh, yeah, I don't have much to refer to to look for the uh, modern like action heroes or action stars of today. It's kind of a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. Unless you think of someone from a superhero franchise as an action film star, but I just think of them as... Superhero films, not necessarily right. traditional action. Anywho, uh, that's really all I had, man. I uh, Did you have any other thoughts or questions?
0: Just a quick thought. just Yeah. I, uh, I just kind of found this funny because Della, who's played by Priscilla Barnes, who was in Three's Company. I think she was the last of the roommates okay. who took over for Chrissy Snow. And I sure. just thought – I don't know why it's popped in my head. It would be hilarious if there was a James Bond, Three's Company crossover when <laughs> Felix starts first dating um, Della. And, of course, Jack somehow offhand hears Felix maybe on the phone for CIA or DEA. And, of course, he thinks that Felix is a drug dealer and you're – Threes Company Chaos ensues. The High like, oh, I would ensue. love to see it. Yeah. I would love to see that.
1: That's amazing. A Threes Company James Bond crossover event. Yes. I love yeah, it.
0: Maybe, yeah, maybe Bond shows up. So then Jack thinks he's the dealer or whatever. I don't know. All right. So let's move on to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five martinis, shaken, of course, not stirred. What do you give License to Kill? I'm
1: going to give it 3.5 martinis. You know, upon rewatch, I didn't think it was great. I thought it was okay. I thought it was good. I thought it had fun moments. I think Timothy Dalton is strong. He plays it a little too straight for me. He still has a great presence. Uh, I think he looks great in the role. Thank God Q is in this movie. The Bond girls kind of save it for me. Carrie Lowell is a highlight. I mean, She actually adds the .5, I think, for me to this film. I do give it three point five. I think really the point five is because I appreciate the overall tone and the attempt at trying to stay closer to the novelizations, and because I do prefer this Bond overall. That's why I do like the Craig films. So yeah, three point five martinis for me.
0: Wow, that's a lot higher than I expected. Yeah, now, now I almost yeah. feel like my rating is going to be too low because I'm only giving it four. Okay, martinis. And like I said, this is a, you know, it is a mid-tier James Bond movie, but it's one of my favorites. I'm sure everyone has their guilty pleasure bond, and it's between this and A View to a Kill. But I think it's pretty solid. Um, I thought I really liked Timothy Dalton's portrayal. I like the fact that it's a more of a grounded story. I would definitely say check it out. Carrie Lowell, major crush on her. Four martinis for me. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at All 80s Movies Podcast, or tweet us at podcastall80s. Next week, the calendar rolls into October, which starts our second annual Splatter Cinema Month, where all the movies we'll be discussing in October will be horror movies. I know, a very original idea. I'm sure no one else will be doing this. However, we are going to start things off with 1985's Reanimator, starring Jeffrey Combs, Bruce Abbott, and Barbara Crampton. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone.
1: He disagreed with something that ate him. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.